This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast. My name is Jonathan. Episode number three is Going in Circles, the Neolithic Period. Okay, so as we enter into the New Age, there is an ability for humanity to create a world of their own rather than just being manipulated by the natural world. Uh, rather than just simply following things, they actually get to develop and create and set down roots for themselves. Uh, they'll develop technological marvels, fascinating buildings that even today are important to us that remain mythological and mysterious. Um, they will also have begun to construct farms. Uh, farming enters Britain around this period as wheat becomes a crop that's found in around the 6000 BCE. Agriculture actually comes into the British Isles via Ireland and the Isle of Man between 5000 and 6000 BCE. It then enters Wales and begins there around 4000 BCE. Cereal crops become the staple of early farmers like a lot of things in the Stone Age. No one's really sure why or how agriculture spread. There is some evidence that hunter-gatherers worked with farmers carrying out trades of goods, and it makes you wonder if they were hired, in quotes, to find these things that might be important to the farming community but were no longer able to pursue. As evidence comparison uh, in the colonial era of North America, uh, there was often trades made with local Native American tribes of furs and uh, different kinds of meat sources and different berries and things that they were able to gather that the colonists weren't able to. So a big feature of the landscape at this point is the beginning of uh, homesteads. Now, there's not loads and loads of evidence. Much like Mesolithic period, there is not a great deal of evidence of houses. The difference is, is that there's just more of them, and what we do have are interesting sites. Uh, one of the one, very first ones in, well, the very first one that we have evidence of in Wales is in a place called, and I'm going to murder this, so apologies, is Clegger Boya, I believe is how you pronounce it. It's uh, near St. David's in Pembrokeshire, near Haverford West in uh, southwest Wales. There is a volcano which basically has been ground down to sort of an outcropping, for lack of a better word, that's made of stone. Uh, volcanic stone, obviously. And this would have been an area which would have been rife for the flint mining that was probably done in the area that we have evidence of earlier. When we were talking about Nab's Head, then there's a few other sites where we find flint napping and flint construction going on in the late Mesolithic period. Uh, archaeological evidence shows that the site began use sometime between 4000 BCE and 3500 BCE, which definitely puts that in the Neolithic period. Uh, this means it was 
as the final land crossing to Europe had disappeared. So thus, these people were looking to settle down. And at this point is roughly when we see agriculture begin. Uh, the first signs of that is, is the clearing of trees and the finds of axes. Stone axes would be common to be found from this period because, of course, you can't farm in an area which is, has a lot of tree covering. So you have to cut them down and then pull all, all the stumps. And then you have an area where you can do that. Now, if you've ever been to the area or seen the area on a map, uh, it is today covered in farms, but back then it probably would have been more waterlogged. Uh, the land mass was bigger than what we have now. Uh, so this position where it is now looks relatively very close to the coast, but in the Neolithic era might not have been as, clo as close. Uh, but it was close to rivers, it was close to a lot of water sources, plus had the advantage of being uh, near this flat plain. So it allows a lot of developments. And it's site actually remains important to the local community through the Iron Age and in fact becomes later on strangely a, uh, a a fort for an Irish pirate in the 6th century AD and so it will maintain some semblance of use for quite a long time I mean we're talking that's like 3,000 years and you can kind of see why when you look at it because it is literally the biggest thing around it stands out from the landscape, giving it a point of both protection, because you can see for miles, and also a point of reverence, you might want to say. Because, again, it stands out for miles around. So one of the things that we talked about last time is the idea that people would look at those things as being somewhat important to them, because these natural environmental factors would have created something mysterious and unusual. And who knows how they explained it to themselves but i think predominantly what's most important is that it was probably used as an easy way of protecting yourself get up higher and be able to protect yourself from you know the surrounding issues of animals or other tribes who might come along and trying to take away your stuff uh, it's a lot easier to deal with them if you have a place to defend yourself from so this site as i said is very important in Welsh history. It also becomes the site of some of the first finds of pottery in Wales. Uh, it also is significant because it gives us our first houses. And housing is kind of different depending on the era. In some cases they can be round. Uh, some cases they're square, triangular shaped, similar to our own houses these days. Uh, it really depends on the location and it's hard to tell why they would have chosen something over another. You know, there's nothing really that says uh, a round house is better than a square one in this particular case, or at least as far as I know of. Uh, whether archaeologists have a different point of view, I couldn't honestly say, but just from my own understanding, I, I, I think it's just a matter of maybe preference uh, design wise, who knows, right? So they found these things at this site. I think some of the most interesting thing that they find there is Neolithic pottery. Now pottery in the Neolithic era is not pottery of the modern era, obviously. It is rougher. It is uh, can be fired, but it's not fired to the same degree as it is now, or even a few years later when they get much better at doing uh, smelting for the Bronze Age. It It is, like I said, it's very rough, worn-looking pottery. But what it does have is it has decoration, it has design, it has use, and most importantly, it has evidence. Uh, in the Neolithic period, it was one of the most important inventions of the age, likely due to the need to store agricultural goods. Uh, pottery is not something you 
just pack around um, just like your dishes at home they can break and they take a while to repair and make so or to make they're not really something you can repair so often uh, what archaeological evidence is found with pottery is broken pottery because obviously you just throw it away um, pottery was decorated in this time period showing that there was a desire to have things a certain style uh, in some cases, they would use cords, which were tied around them before they were fired, when the clay was soft, which would give them an appearance of a certain type uh, as well. Pottery after it had been fired would have been painted and decorated with geometric shaping. So the designs of the early pottery is based not on human appearances or gods, as we would understand them, but rather design, eth eth uh, design aesthetic. Uh, and it also becomes important that pottery becomes the lingua franca of archaeology. If you want to understand our past, you need pottery. Pottery gives us what we know about our past. Why does it do that? Well, because first of all, you're containing something, right? So a lot of times what we do is we find evidence of what was contained in there. So that's great because then you know what they ate, you know what they stored, you know what was significant enough to be held there and also of course in later times as they do cremations you'll know that they're buried from burials you'll know that's a person and not just some random pot that was stuck in there for some reason the other thing about pottery is it identifies the location because often as we get further and further towards our history pottery will become specific Potteries will have a specific look, and obviously because earth can be different in different locations, and so can the clay, uh, it'll take on different appearances, and some will become sort of the uh, pottery, sort of like, you know, how we have various items get well-known from being like Southwest food and, and Cajun food and that kind of thing, and fish and chips is British food. Uh, that, that concept that this is from here, so this is where you get that from. And as we get into the Roman era, there will be massive amounts of pottery that will be found. And one of the biggest ones is something called Samianware, which comes from France, but obviously was hugely popular in the Roman period because almost without fail, if you find a Roman site, you find Samianware. And so it's interesting to see how that is traded, how it is used. They become, uh, for traders like the Phoenicians, large urns will carry olive oil to other parts of the world will carry all sorts of goods throughout the ancient world and will be basically the way you contain stuff for many millennia and even today of course we use a version of that that's what our plates and and things like that our crockery uh, is just based was just a different kind of pottery that's been done and used a different way so they have massive consequences for our understanding of the world and particularly how we understand our ancient ancestors, what they ate, what they used, you know, and, and what were they doing with these pots? And of course, because of the localness of the clay, you also get an idea of what the local standards would be. You know, how good of a quality was it? How good was the clay in that area? How good is the design ethic that they use? You know, all of those things become important. And one of the things that, that as we study pottery, one of the things we learn is that when civilizations don't have specialists that are designing pottery, when, when it becomes a point where it's not a mass-produced item like it is in the Roman period, we can actually see where that falls off and where we get back to the local guy making your pottery because you can't go farther afield for it. So you end up in, like, say, the so-called 
well, the early medieval period, that's one of the big indications that we've gone from the Roman period to the medieval period is that the pottery changes quite dramatically and, and where it's made and how it's made. So pottery will be important. We will talk about it a lot. Uh, the evidence it gives us is amazing. And they are something that shows us what the local population would be doing at the time and, and why they would be doing it. So it's, it's, a, it's a great source. And it's one of those ways that you can actually know what the, what the normal person's doing when you don't have written evidence. Now, the other thing we want to talk about that comes out of the Neolithic period is a megalith. A megalith is something of an interesting design aesthetic where large stones specifically are used to build items of importance. Typically, uh, they're used to, and construction to, in uh, what is called a long barrow, which is basically a, a small man-made hill that kind of goes on a long, uh, I wouldn't say rectangular, but sort of that idea. And at the front of it, or typically somewhere on the side, usually facing the village or the area, or the community or something along that line, or possibly in a height, an area of importance as far as viewpoint, they would build an entryway. And that entryway would be made of stone. Within the barrow is a communal tomb. And so in this period of time we go from burying dead sort of randomly as far as we can tell uh, and unfortunately from a lack of evidence we don't have a lot of evidence of how burials were done prior to this but in this period we start to get an idea of that burials became ritually important and as you set down roots one of the things you want to do is set down something for your dead and so these communal tombs uh, were held and the interesting part of this is and I one of the things that archaeologists I think debate is whether or not people would bury their dead in these tombs and not really bury, obviously, because they would just put them in the tomb, uh, probably in a hollow or something like that, similar to what they did in the, in the Jewish tombs. Whether or not these people would then go back and, and carry on their relationship with their ancestors or their family member who's died. And there are different ways, obviously, you know, they would have a different idea of how the dead relate to them than we do. And so their concepts of that communication would be different than us, you know, whereas we would go to a tomb or a, a, a grave site and maybe, you know, have a chat with our ancestor or our family member, as an example, um, they would possibly even go up to the bones of the local ancestor and, and, you know, maybe that was something of a family affair. It's really hard to say. You can't know for sure because we don't have any evidence from written record that they did this but certainly it does question i have always wondered if maybe that was part of the reason why they were built that way is because it's easier to commune with them and to be a part of their afterlife as it were and was that something that was important to them was it significant for them to do that i don't know um and we don't actually know quite all of the reasons why they would do it. But this was very common in this era. It changes as we go into the Bronze Age. But it's very different from what we were dealing with in the Mesolithic period. Because you don't have the same sense of how people... Because now all of a sudden you have an evidence of what people were buried like. How they were treated at death and, and what that meant to them. And typically... 
you know, it, it, it's it's a very different way than what we would be used to. But yet, at the same time, it creates that connection with the dead, which we do as well. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, the other thing about megaliths is they're not just for the dead, they're also for the living, and they've been found all over Wales and Britain, and they come in all shapes and sizes, and we'll get into some other ones in a bit here, but that's certainly something that, keep in mind that a megalith doesn't just mean a burial mound, it means something typically constructed by man to symbolize something, or constructed by humans to symbolize something. So... Another thing to look at with a Neolithic human would be the use of high places. Uh, if we look back at ancient documents that we actually do have, and, and some of the more modern uh, people from, who lived in that sort of environment, one of the things we do know is that, that places that stood out, especially high places, symbolize something to them, be it coming closer to God, be it coming closer to the ancestors or whatever it is. In Greek terms, they used to put temples there. That's why the the Acropolis is where it is. Um, in the Canaanite period and in the later Hebrew period, uh, the idea of high places were much discussed. I mean, the Temple of Solomon is built on a high place. Temples in Israel were put in high places, and, and it's constantly mentioned, in fact, that, oh, how dare you put this temple in a high place? And the other part of this is, is that not only high places, but we also have evidence that 
forested areas would also be considered to be important and to be communing with something, nature, God, ancestors, it's hard to say. Because the reason why we think this is because there's evidence of this happening in the ancient world, both in writing and in our, our observations of people in similar circumstances, that to them it was significant. Like in my local area, we have people who buried their dead in cliff sides and they would be a place that as they passed back and forward during their hunter-gathering period, they would pass this area and it would still be significant to them. They may have even carried their dead for a ways in order to bury them at this place because it was such a holy site to them. And in fact, it led to drawings on the stone. Uh, in fact, the place here in Alberta is called Writing on Stone because the Native Americans here did just that. They drew pictures and drew sort of what they kind of their their experience was like in an era which is still sort of on a stone age level for us so if they're doing this likely that same sort of thing is kind of going on in other places and like i said we can see through evidence in near eastern writings that both forests and high places mountainous places were considered to be holy locations uh, in fact so much so that in Mesopotamia, they built mounds and eventually large mud brick buildings, uh, which take the forms of these higher places. Uh, they will later be called ziggurats and kind of in a way to reach God, because you need to reach him at the upper elevations, right? Greek mythology says the gods lived on the top of Mount Olympus. The concept of God in ancient Hebrew was that he was above us. And so thus, obviously, you would try and get closer to that link to your god or gods as the case may be and in terms of probably what was going on in the celtic slash iron age um rivers natural rivers forests had a big part to play in creating that link so all of these natural sites would become important and these natural wonders would uh, become significant like for example going back to the biblical examples you can even point to mount sinai as being an example of that because if god appears only on this mountain um so the best way to reach god is to go high into this mountain so even in the biblical examples we have this idea that you go high to meet god so certainly while we don't have loads of evidence of this i would assume one of the reasons why we do have megaliths appearing in higher locations is because of that particular idea. These natural wonders become a focal point for ritualization. This idea of getting closer to nature and getting closer to a higher spot also features strongly in the way our ancestors thought about things. And I think one of the things that they started to do is to make nature in their own image. Uh, not necessarily, obviously, in the image of humans, but rather instead of going to a forest to commune with God, as you clear away the forest, it's a lot harder and takes that much longer to get there. So you start to create the forest back at home, uh, not just in, say, planting trees, but then you sort of say, well, I'll just cut down some logs and I'll put these in holes here. And they stand in the place of that forest. You know, I can't get close to the mountains because they're too far away. The high places are too far away. So how about I bring some stones from those high places to me? set them up as my new high place as a sim 
hyperbolic way of showing that. And I might put them at the local high spot, or I might put them in a spot where they can be easily seen by lots of people. So now all of a sudden my ritualistic place, instead of being someplace I have to go to and work to get to, becomes a place that's right next door and is a place that I made to worship my local deity. So then we get something called hinges. Now, hinges, we always think of Stonehenge when we think hinges. Oh, Stonehenge, Stonehenge, Stonehenge. Well, hinges are something more than that. They can be made of wood. They can be made of stone. They can be made of natural, like, bending of formations. Uh, you can create them with ditches and with banks. and But they're, natu they're not naturally made. They're human-made items. And typically, they're circular in nature. And as we go along from the Neolithic period to the Bronze Age these hinges will carry forward and in fact become significant even in modern era in now more of as a tourism and a place of mythology but the fact of the matter remains is that some of these spots are still significant to us even now which is shocking to think of uh how long they've been around like stonehenge for example starts off as just a little standing stone location it's got a ditch and a bank it's known for being a place archaeologists now think and at least initially as a place of burials uh, it becomes obviously stronger and more important from an astronomical point of view at some point down the road but in the beginning it's just literally a place with some standing stones and a ditch and yet nowadays we still go to this place as a place to worship at as a place to understand and commune with something greater than ourselves, even if it's just as a tourist where we're going and seeing what it looked like. And, oh, my goodness, isn't that interesting? Um, these hinges exist in all over the UK and Ireland. They are kind of the lingua franca of ritualization. And we know that there's evidence of them being in wooden and in stone. And there's lots of... Archaeologists argue over what they mean and how they were used and why they were used. And everything from, I think one of the theories I've heard is that wooden hinges were sort of for the living and stone hinges were for the dead. But we don't really know. I mean, we only have an idea. But what we do know is that there's this idea of communing with something greater than ourselves, which comes out of these places. And I think they come about in part because we're trying to take the natural world and bend it to our will and put it in a place where it's easy for us to get to. And I think that's why they're trying to do this. So we have hinges, we have pottery, we have changing weapons. The other big thing that happens in the Neolithic period, and one of the reasons why it's called the Neolithic period, is because we change the tools that we're using. We go from using stone tools that are very thick, they're they're chopped up into sharp points, um, but at the same time, if you look at a Mesolithic weapon or axe, it's very rudimentary compared to what we get in the Neolithic period. In fact, the Neolithic period is what we think of, I think, largely when we think of stone tools. You know, the arrow points and, and the spear points and the edging on the edge of axes and things. A lot of that comes out of that Neolithic period because one of the things that they do is they, they try and make it sharper and so they lose durability in creating sharpness, which creates even more need to do more tool repair. Thus, it continues this cycle of continually needing more and more and more of these tools. And so there's a great transition towards this idea. And we see that across uh, 
the world as we look at things and, and as people change how they use items. Uh, and these tools become more and more ubiquitous. They will remain in use even into the Bronze Era because even though we have a Bronze Age, which comes about, there's still, you know, Dad used this axe, it's significant to me. Or, hey, it's still cheaper than buying from the local, you know, bronze maker so or maybe you don't have access to a lot of tin and and a lot of things to make bronze with so thus stone will remain a component of human use in fact one could argue right up until about the 1700s ad as they were used in other places and still can be found in some uh, isolated tribes today very rare but a lot you know there still is use and so they're still important and they're the cheapest and easiest thing you can have. And learning how to do it isn't very difficult. It is difficult to do it right, but it's not difficult to learn. Um, much like a lot of things, I guess. The other thing we see here that comes about is burial practices. We talked a little bit earlier about how the communal burial sites become important and how as we have a more agricultural and and, and centered community we develop this whole idea that we can you know we need to bury our dead close to us and have them be reachable and so we talk about the barrows the barrows are basically dirt mounds again as i said that they then put sort of entryways of stone into and they kind of show how we respect our dead the other thing we find now and then the Neolithic period especially is the there are more items buried with people, pots and things, you know, more significant things have been developed. So more significant things are now being buried with our, with the dead, uh, bone items, uh, all sorts of different things. And this will continue from now until the Christian era. Basically we will find items buried with our dead up until that period when in the Christian era, it's, you know, sort of not forbidden, but it's considered not, not done as much. And so comparatively, that will change. But until then, we find lots of places where there's lots of people who've been buried who have items with them. Those shale beads we talked about before from Nab's Head will continue to be a thing for people. Uh, decoration and adornment with seashells and all sorts of things will s still be there and, and will become increasingly important to the population. And as we develop more and more skills, there will become more and more valuable things, be it glass eventually, uh, be it things like uh, metal. Obviously, you know, there will be some people who will be buried with their weaponry because that was significant to them and it is valuable, um, which is something of an interesting discussion in and of itself. I think the other thing that we, we need to understand is that as we get closer to the Bronze Age, the Neolithic period in Wales becomes a much more active period. You know, there, there's more people here. There's a growing sense of community now because you've got people having to live close to each other, in part because of trade, in part because people have different skills in all likelihood. There's going to be specialization for some people. Uh, importantly as well, uh, trade is easier to develop when you have lots of skills and lots of people to contribute to it. And we'll see things like seafaring trade and, and all of that begin to become very important. And as well, 
some of the basic understanding of the way the world works changes because you're no longer chasing your food. Now your food is with you. You start to domesticate animals and you go from having to hunt down an aurochs to, well, I have a cattle. I have cattle. I have pigs. I have sheep. They're here. I don't have to go hunting for them. So pastoral land is important and will continue to be important in the Welsh mindset right up to the modern age. And it's built in this era. And our way of dealing with those kind of things will be in this era. The Neolithic period is fascinating. I think it, it begins so much of what we now know. Um, we, we're, we're only really skimming even the evidence, let alone what might have been. And it's it will never in this series be able to give the due that these people need to be given for what they were able to achieve and accomplish. They changed the world in some of the things that they did. You know, humanity went from being something of a, you know, sort of just another animal, for lack of a better word, to something that can actually affect on a massive scale the way the world works. And it begins in this period. And that's proven in Britain, it's proven in Europe, it's proven in China, and in Egypt is when they're starting to build things like pyramids. So much is being changed in this period because of this advance that people are making due to agriculture. And I think it's it's a fascinating thing to study. I would encourage you to continue to go deeper into it. Uh, I, I've attached some links, I've been attaching links to some of the stuff I've read. Uh, I will continue to try and do that as much as I can. Keep in mind, this will only be a sort of a touchstone of some of the things. I won't cover every single thing I've read because I've done a lot of reading of some of this stuff, especially later on over a number of years. So I don't have, I don't remember where I got some of it, right? But as we go, hopefully you can use this stuff to do some further reading and find out some more because there's some fascinating things that go on in these periods, which I just won't be able to give enough credit and, and and ability to talk about and certainly there are other podcasts which do that and i would encourage you to listen to them um and while we're here let's talk about the british history podcast which is one of my favorite podcasts and it talks about britain as a whole uh it is very good it's very in-depth right now on anglo-saxon and viking periods uh we won't probably go as in-depth into that discussion simply because if you really want to listen to the to the English version of this, he does a great job. Jamie does a great job of covering that. So I would encourage you to go listen to that. We're going to try and stay focused on Welsh history. We will, of course, brush into, especially in these early periods, we're going to be brushing into stuff in what we now know as England and in Scotland and in Ireland, simply because they will affect Wales. And that will remain the case from the future. But understand that it's going to be brushing rather than in-depth. And if you want in-depth, there are other places you can go. Like I said, British History Podcast is a great one, and, and I would recommend it. Conversely, as I said, there's articles, there's books, there's all sorts of other fascinating material. And if you want to understand archaeology in sort of a short, easy bite-sized format, look up Time Team on YouTube. They're great. It was a great series that they had in Britain on Channel 4. Probably got me most excited about archaeology that anything else could and was one of my favorite ever TV shows. And it's very entertaining. And if you ever watched Black Adder in the 80s, um, the guy who plays Baldrick, Tony Robinson, is the host. 
and he does a great job of sort of presenting it to a to a viewer who doesn't necessarily understand the ins and outs of things and plays that role quite well so i would definitely recommend you have a look around for that obviously in north america about the only way you can watch it is on youtube it's incredibly difficult to find otherwise but in britain i think they're still on replays in some places and finally as always uh Please recommend us to your friends. Please, 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 if you like this series, give us a review on iTunes, on Google Play, on Stitcher. We desperately need those because those help other people to find them. And I hope you've enjoyed, are enjoying the series. And as we go, I hope you'll continue to come with me and we'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. For more information, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first, due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor, and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.